I've been talking about um, Hosea and the story of Hosea and Gomer. And Hosea's this uh, prophet guy. He's, he's a minor prophet, which means he only wrote a short book, although he's, he's the longest of the short books. And um, God asked him to be a living parable or a living example, living story of what God was trying to do. So he gets him to go and marry this prostitute called Gomer, and then he gets her to uh, he gets him to bring up Gomer's kids that get born out of prostitution. So it's not a, it's not a happy thing. And Gomer keeps going off. You know, she uses all the jewels that Jose has bought for her, and she uses them to attract other lovers. And even when he gets her to come back, uh, because she's at the end of herself, even then she goes off again and sells herself to somebody else. And he has to go and buy her back. And we, we've looked at all that. Now, that all takes place in the early part of the book of Hosea. Now, the rest of the book, uh, I could bore you endlessly with, because there's another ten chapters, but the point of it is, is God saying, that's an example of how I feel about you, that even though you, 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 are, you uh, don't care about me, even though you've walked away from me, even though you, you've used my talents and my gifts in ways that were unworthy, even though you've not understood my heart, even though you've not cared for me, I'm still here waiting for you. And, and he says, that's how I feel about you. That's how I feel about every person in faith life and outside of faith life. And, um, and then he, he calls Hosea and he basically says, now tell them why they are like Gomer. So Hosea spends 10 chapters telling them why they're like Gomer. Now, in those 10 chapters, which we're not going to do, there are, there, there are the two passages that are probably the two most famous passages in Hosea. The ones we quote more than, than, than any others. And it's those I'm going to look at this morning. But I'm going to just start at Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. And the point is this. Where we get to this morning is we find out whose fault it is that people are in such a mess. And the answer is going to surprise you. So God's working up to this. He's going to say, this is, this is the reason why it's all gone wrong. Now, we, we might have our reasons why things go wrong. We might go, look, why, you know, why are so few people in England Christian, not uh, why are so few people in England going to church? Why are so few people Christians? Why are they not switched on to God? Why, why do even those who go to church, why do you, you think like they're just like everybody else? Why is this? And God's going to nail it for us now. And interestingly, what he doesn't say is, you're not following what I told you to do. That's not the reason that people get switched on. He... he, he He's not going to say, guys, you're not trying hard enough. He's not even going to say, the problem is you're all terrible and you're all disobedient to me and you ought to be sorry for yourselves. Okay? That's not the problem. And we have to understand that because for generations, um, we've managed to beat people up with those sort of things. 
in churches. And all we've managed to do is empty our churches. Because people haven't encountered the real God, they've encountered religion. And religion will kill you and the real God will give you life. And we want life. It's life that we impart, it's life that we give. So in Hosea 4.1 he says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with you, with the inhabitants of life. Basically he's stating his case. Yeah, he's, he's gone... Like, have you ever seen them guys on soapboxes and this is what I'm telling you. This is my case. I'm presenting it to you. You know, in the days before overhead projectors or PowerPoints or anything like that, you would state your case in front of the people. That's what God's doing. He's stating his case and he says, this is what, this is what the issue is, guys. There is no truth, no mercy, and no knowledge of God in the land. So the point's this, that the problem isn't people's behaviour. The problem is the root of why they behave like that. And, you know, we're really good at telling people off for their behaviour and not doing anything about the root that causes that behaviour. We're hitting the wrong target. And it, some of you have have experienced that, where you've had that wrong target hit, been made to feel full of shame, full of guilt, and it hasn't set you free, it's made you feel worse. And you're still carrying on doing what you were doing anyway. So it didn't produce what it was meant to do. So the problem's not our behaviour, the problem's the root of our behaviour, and God nails three things. No truth, no mercy, and no knowledge of God. Now, how do you, what, what do those mean? Well, that word truth is, uh, um, I guess it's Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew word, because um, it's towards it. Some of, the, some of the Old Testament's written in a language called Chaldean, which I don't know, I don't understand, but th this is Hebrew. And this word in Hebrew is emeth, okay? So we might have an idea about truth. And our idea about truth is, guys, here's seven things that you need to memorize, and here's seven things that you need to obey, and then you'll be okay. That's not what it is. But that's how we can read that word truth, because we read it, if we've been beaten up by that religion stuff, we read it through that lens. Now, that word truth is emeth. It means firmness, steadfastness, sureness, and stability. That's not rules, is it? But it's still the word truth. Steadfastness, sureness, stability, firmness. In fact, it's the word that the, the Bible says, you have, to, you have to have that to be faithful. You can't walk, in other words, you can't walk faithfully if there's no underlying sureness, stability, and steadfastness in your life. You've got to have something that that faithfulness can rest on. Otherwise, when your world shakes, your faithfulness will fall off. That word that translated with truth, emeth, is actually the word it's, that's used in the Old Testament for God's faithfulness. It's his type of faithfulness. It's not rocked by anything. And so we want a, we want a, a stability. So the contrast here is between no truth, as in nothing stable in your life, no uh, Sureness, no, no firmness, no stability. 
and no truth, sorry, and God's truth, which gives you that firmness and stability. Now, the question is, where do you get truth? Where do you get that sort of truth? As a New Testament believer, how do we find out what, how do we get that? How do we get that in our life? How do we get that stability in our life? How many of you would like not to be getting rocked by stuff that, that just comes along in your life? How, how many of you would like a bit of stability in there? A bit of like, I'm going to get through this. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm an overcomer. I'm a winner. I get through this. I'm hanging on to this, this truth. I'm hanging on to this stability. And you ain't budging me from that. Yeah? There's, there's a source of stability. It's called the rock. It's called Jesus. And we hang on to Jesus. Now, why do I say that? How's that link? Well, let me show you this. New covenant. So let's go the other side of the cross, the other side of what Jesus has done. Let's see what Jesus says about where you get this sort of truth. This is the New Testament. Uh, uh, what's, what's the reference I'm looking for? John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32. John chapter 8, 31 to 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, so this is to what? Believers. Who's a believer? I'm a believer. This is monkey. There's a good monkey song, I'm a believer. But we're not doing that one. Anybody want to sing it? No. I'm not going to. Anyway, so there's those Jews who believed him. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. You're really my disciples. And it produced something. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So the first thing about us finding that stability in our life comes from the word. We, we live in the word. We live. Now, let me, let me categorize that for you because one of the things we go, you know, because we're, we're Brits and we learn the way we learn in schools and all that sort of stuff, we immediately leave, learn go, oh, I've got to memorize more Bible verses, I've got to know the Bible, I've got to read it 10 hours a day, and then I'm abiding in his word. That's not what Jesus is talking about. How do I know that's not what Jesus is talking about? Because there were some guys who were really good at that, they were called Pharisees, and he didn't like them at all. So you don't want to be a Pharisee, you want to be a believer. What does it mean when Jesus says, um, abide in my word? This is what it means. Um, the first way we find truth is what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? And we approach it in this way. If Jesus said that and I know him, then I want to live that. Do you get this? If I know him, I want to live that. It's not knowing stuff so you can repeat it. It's about it becoming part of you so you can live it. And the second part that helps us find truth that Jesus said is, so the first part is, what did Jesus say? The second part is, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus like? Know what Jesus is like by desiring to know him. That we... Um, pursue him, we seek him, we go after him, we, we uh, seek, uh, chase him. We, we want to know more. He, he becomes the passion, the center of our life. And 
And in doing that, we, we get to know him. And we know what he's like. We know his heart. And, and when we know his heart, we see the truth. Do you get it? You don't see truth by learning. You see truth by knowing the person and what they meant when they wrote it. Um, John 14 says this. Jesus said to, to, some, to some guy, um, I think it's Thomas. Thomas is always the one that asks the hard questions, isn't he? So Thomas comes along and he says, I, how do we know the way to heaven? You said you're going to leave us. How do we know the way? And Jesus comes out with this statement, I'm the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and we've seen him. And then he goes on and makes a statement and says, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. We're one and the same. Now, what's the point of that? If you want to know what God means from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you look at Jesus and you interpret and see it through the lens of what he's like. Let me... Let me give you an example of that from my life. And I might hit a few nerves here, okay? But this is, is a number of years ago, and as, he, as I started out at the beginning of this sermon series about the encounter that I had with God in Sunderland, I'm going to end up uh, today talking about some of the things about, um, that I learned as a result of what happened at Toronto and the people around it. And this is something I learned because I'd been brought up uh, from decades in church. I was dry as a bone, all, all sorts of things. I was ready to walk away from God. And my picture of God was there's God the Father on the throne. Yeah? And he's got like lightning bolts, fire, sword, all that sort of stuff. And he's, he's angry. Yeah? He hates sin. He hates the stuff that I'm doing. Uh, he, he, he just is ready to judge everything. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus is, um, dies for all that stuff that God would like to wipe me out for. And I'm totally forgiven. I'm totally set free. And Jesus is there. And he's sort of like fending God off for me on my behalf. And Jesus is the nice one. And God's the one that's full of anger and ready to judge me. How many of you have had that picture that Jesus is like that and God's like that? How many of you think like that? Yeah? That would say, and I, I'd read this loads, I knew it, I remembered this verse, it was one of my memory verses as a teenager. That's just totally wrong. It has to be, because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you see what the Father's like. We're one and the same. We haven't got an angry God and a goody-goody Jesus that's holding him off. We've got a God who loves us. A God who's willing to die for us. A God who will chase us throughout eternity. A God who pursues us. A God who's passionate about us. A God who's, who delights in us. A God who takes joy in us. A God who, who is proud of his kids. And so when you see Jesus, it changes your the way you see the word. And we, we have to see Jesus. Are you getting it? Are you with me? Okay. 
So truth isn't an abstract concept. It's a person. And he's called Jesus. And as a result of that, what that means is we're not working on a set of ideas, principles or formulas. This isn't what this is about. It's not about seven steps to salvation. It's not about three, three things to clean your life up. It's not about me telling you how bad you are so I can get you to an altar call and you can say how bad you are and then go on doing it next week again. So you have to come forward again. It's not about that. It's about changing that desire that's within you. Because it's the desire within you that's the problem. It's the desire within, within people that causes the behaviours. So the desire's got to change. And the only way the desire changes is not by rules, it's not by ideas, it's not by principles, it's not even by programmes. The only way the desire changes is by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. It's falling more and more in love with God and more and more in love with Jesus, so you don't want to live like that anymore. And when you don't want to live like that anymore, he'll empower you to not live like that anymore. Because he lives in you, he's given you a new heart by his spirit, so you don't have to live like that. You getting this? This is exciting, we should be excited about these things. You're not looking excited, you're looking like you're still studying. Stop studying. Start getting excited. You know, the, I'm not giving you memory verses, I'm giving you life. You know, we don't, we don't, we're not here... The real problem, sorry, I, I'm getting excited, so I'm going to stand up here. Right, the real problem is we in the West produce, we've geared our churches up to produce Christians. We're not meant to be Christians, we're meant to be lovers of Jesus. We're not joined a social club. If you joined a social club, go and support Man United or Chelsea or something. Get it over with. Get it out of your system. Pay 50 quid. Go along on a Saturday and shout louder than you do in worship. You know, we have joined something. We've joined a family. We've been adopted and we live with Jesus. And we have the power to change the world in us. And we sit there. <laughs> How is that not exciting? <laughs> you know, it, it really struck me. And, and I said this last week. I've been listening. Uh, just God had me listening over and over again to this lady called Misty Edwards, who's the worship leader at IHOP, International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And I saw her being interviewed, and, and this guy said to her, You've gone from like, because she was one of the original five that started this place, and, and that, they now do a thing, they've done it for several years at, at New Year called One Thing, which is like a youth conference. And there's about 15,000 people now that go along to this youth conference. And this guy said, how, how did you go from leading five people to all these thousands and thousands of people? You know, how did you make that transition? And, and she said, and... and this was about 20 minutes into the interview, and it's just, it struck me how, like, there's something unusual about this woman, that she actually is who she says she is. You know, like, you see lots of people, you go, well, okay, I've heard what you said. Um, these things get, like, she actually is who she says she is. And she said this. She said, I've never worshipped for 15, worship led for 15,000 people. And this guy goes, uh, well, what about one thing? 
I'm never, I never do. Never done it. I only worship lead to an audience of one. I only worship lead to an audience of one. And Shelley and I have been watching um, her uh, doing this concert uh, one thing about two, three years ago. And it's amazing. It's like, you know, like you get your rock star and they're out the front and you get your superstar worship leader and they're out the front and yay, oh, and all that sort of stuff and, and they're right in the middle. She's like over there. And the, the band's over here. She's over there on her own. And she's, she's worshipping, okay? Now, she's like the main attraction. Okay, guys, what do you do if you're the main attraction? You don't turn your back on everybody and worship over there, do you? But that's what she's doing. She's worshipping God and not looking at the people because she's got her eyes on the one. And as a church, we need to have our eyes on the one. This is all about Jesus. This is all about seeing him. It's all about knowing him. It's all about getting his heartbeat. It's all about living for him. You know, ultimately, when we stand before the throne of God, he's going to ask us, did you live your life as if it was for an audience of one. How, how do you know what, what, that's what we're called to do? Living our life for an audience of one. Living our life for an audience of one. That's a challenge I'm giving you. That's a challenge God's giving us. We live our life for an audience of one. Okay, so what's the second issue? The second issue is this. Um, um, so we've had truth, mercy. Mercy is the second problem, why we get these, it all gets in a mess. That word... Uh, Mercy is chesed. Chesed, that's another Hebrew word. See, I'm, I'm improving your minds as well as your spirit this morning. Look, I'm still wandering even though I've got this stand here, aren't I? <laughs> right. Chesed, because I, 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 I'm a pastor, so I do the really important things. So I do the, the stuff that you don't want to do, okay? So... My job, I, re I read the boring commentaries, okay? That's what I do. You don't have to read the boring commentaries. You, you just have to support me and go, oh, poor Mark, he's sat there with all those boring commentaries. And, and just thank God that you have somebody that likes people like Do John Stott and all these incredible men of God who wrote boring commentaries for people like me to read, and I love them. But the good thing is you don't have to worry about them because you've given that job to me. Now, all these commentators say that chesed is actually the most important word in the Old Testament. The most important word in the Old Testament. Mercy is the way it's usually translated. Sometimes it's translated God's favour or blessing. Mercy. And because it's the most important word... We go, okay, so if we don't get anything else, we have to do mercy, right? Or we have to do blessing. And basically, if you don't get the meaning of this word chesed, or that's translated mercy here, you miss the point of the whole Old Testament and the whole Bible. Okay, so this, this is where you should be paying attention, because this is the most important thing you need to know because that's what the commentaries say. And I'm just telling you what I've learned. I'm sharing with you what my notes say, what I've learned. Now, because of the way we've been brought up, and we go, oh, it's Old Testament, therefore it's a rule, we go, I have to do mercy, or God's not pleased with me. Forget that. 
Here's why it's the most important word in the Old Testament. Because it's not an obligation. Okay? It's not an obligation. It's not, um, it's not a rule. Um, you are not in any way forced to give chesed or give mercy or, or favor. Let me put it this way. So it's not an obligation. It's not a rule. It's not the law. It's not part of the law. It's an attitude. And that's why it's the most important. Now, what does that mean? Now, we get kind of used in the Old Testament to all these rules, don't we? You know, that's why we all avoid reading Leviticus and all the rest of it, isn't it? Because it's just full of rules that we don't want to do. And we kind of like being on the other side of the cross because that's all kind of fun because we, we can ignore the rules, but we don't really. We try and keep the rules and we rubbish at it. Because we've got this idea, God saved me by grace, but I have to get better by trying harder and following the rules. So, in the Old Testament, God says some pretty astonishing things. And one of the things he says is about this word chesed. And, and the way he... Let me, let me um, tell you about this. Anybody know how our legal system works in the UK or in any other country? Basically, there's a bunch of politicians who get together and don't hide their money in Panama. And they get together and they write um, rules that we all follow. And if we don't follow, they send the FBI or the cops or the Metropolitan Police around with the guns and the handcuffs and lock us up. Or fine us. Yeah? Now, when they bring in all these laws, they are words written on a page. Would you agree? And, and so there are things developed in that called the rules of statutory interpretation. Like, how do you know what the word means? Because basically you've got a bunch of people like David Cameron and all the rest of them, and they're writing these laws. Well, not him personally, but people who work for him. And they're writing these laws, and they put these words down. And words can mean anything. Can't they? They're not, they're not absolutely nailed down and precise. Same with the Old Testament. And we have these rules in court. So basically, you've got these wise guys called judges, and they, they make a decision at one level of court, but if you go to a higher level, and the, the, the cleverer judges and, and the, you know, the more promoted judges overrule that decision, you've got to follow the one from the higher court. They're the rules that we follow in interpreting what David Cameron and his buddies meant when they wrote the law. This word chesed is the method of interpretation about what God meant when he wrote the law. It's not the law itself. It's, it's the interpretation. It, it's, it's the lens that you have to apply to know what he's saying. Okay, this, you know like I talked at the start, end of last year about deep and wide? This is the deep bit. This is the bit you have to stay awake for in this sermon. It gets lighter in a minute again. Okay, this is the deep bit. So this is, this is um, basically the interpretation of what God does right through the Bible, you have to interpret through the lens of his heart. 
And his heart is chesed. His heart is blessing. His heart is mercy. His heart is love. That's what he's trying to get at. And so when, when you go, when you approach the Bible, you know that bit about abiding in his word? When you say, I want to do what you want, God. I want to know what you want. I want to follow your heart. I want to know your heart. You go, how do I know that? I look at Jesus. He's the epitome of who God is. And I've got a lens that I look at, and it's called mercy. It's called love. It's called grace. And I look at it through that lens because that word translated mercy in the passage where God says it's all gone wrong. In the New Testament, there's another word for it, and its, it's nearest equivalent is charis. And charis means grace. And in the New Testament, grace gets added on to mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is in empowering and in giving in something we don't deserve. So he puts the two together and says, that's how we live. We, get, we don't get what we deserve and we get stuff we don't deserve. You see, when you talk about desires, that God's heart of mercy and grace has a root cause. Like our wrongdoing has a root cause. Our behaviours have a root cause. And his root cause is love. God has a root cause and it's love. And it drives everything he does because it's who he is. You getting this? Okay, that's the deep bit finished. We can have some fun again now. Right, so part three, knowledge of God. That, knowledge, that, that word knowledge of God is wisdom, understanding, um, uh, what else? Uh, insight. And interestingly, it's the way the, the word works is you receive it through your senses. It's not about, it's not about book running. We, now, get this. It's the knowledge of God. Do you miss, like, you can read that and you can miss that little word, of? And that's really important because it doesn't say knowledge about God. It says, you've got to know him. You don't know him. That's your problem. You don't know him, and that's why you're getting all these behaviours. You don't understand he's a God of mercy. You don't understand he loves you. You don't understand the incredible person he is. You don't understand how he's pursued you, how he's chased you, how he's there for you. You don't understand anything about him, and therefore it's producing stuff in you which is horrible. That's why the world's in a mess. It doesn't know Jesus. It doesn't know God. That's why your next door neighbour's a mess. They don't know God. That's why you, in the morning, when you get in the bathroom and you're thinking about yesterday, you go, oh, it's a bit of a mess. It's because you're drifting away from knowing God, keeping your eyes on God, keeping your eyes on Jesus. How do you, how do, you do that? Basically, we have to see God's ways. We have to understand his heart. We have to know he's big enough. Let's have a look at Proverbs, something in Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verses 3 to 8. It says this, Let not mercy and truth... So we're talking about the same things in Proverbs. Mercy, MF. Sorry, mercy, chesed, truth, MF. Forsake you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Now what does that say to you? It says to me... It might say something different to you, but I'm up here, you're not, so I'll give my opinion. It says to me, 
Th these are important. I'm supposed to attach them to my head and bind them around my neck. Some Jews do that. They have little boxes with things written on their heads and on headbands. Incredible people. And so, and what happens when you do this? You find favour and high esteem in the sight of God and man. People go, there's something different about them, and I esteem it, and I want it. Because they, they're not like other people. I come around them, I get stuff I don't deserve. I come around them, I get blessed. I come around them, I get healed. I come around them, I get set free. I come around them, I feel good about myself. I come around them, I go out, I chat to them for half an hour, I come out of the room, I'm full of life. I go in miserable, I come out happy. I like those, I want it. That's who we are, that's who we're meant to be. That's who Christ is creating in you right now. So in the sight of God, trust in the Lord, how? With everything you've got. And don't lean on your own understanding. That's how we live. <coughs> Point number three on what Cheryl and I are called to, what faith life is called to. Total reliance on God to build this church and change this city. Total reliance on God. You know, we can do all sorts of things, but we have to do it relying on God. The tragedy of the church in the last 30 or 40 years is we've discovered we can build churches without any involvement of God at all. Because we can build them through the internet, we can build them through the presentation, we can build them through the preach, we can build them through the programs, and we don't need God, and we don't need the Holy Spirit, and that's great until the world starts rocking, and people will not stand. They will not stand. And there's sick people who need healing. There's people in bondage and oppression of demons who need setting free. There's lives that need changing. There's souls that need saving. And we're entertaining our way to heaven. And it doesn't fit. Why did it not match up in those days, it wasn't God it wasn't done in reliance on God see we need to understand something it's really simple John Arnott taught me this 10 years or more ago and he said something just to me I was, t I was telling you I've something I was I think we, we haven't been going as a church very long. And I, and I said, it's just, you know, it's really hard work. And he said, you need to remember one thing. He said, he's God, you're not. And then he walked off. <laughs> I go, thanks, John. <laughs> but he is. He's God, I'm not. So if I build something without him, it's me. Yeah. And you know what will happen when I'm not around? Yeah. It won't be there anymore. Because it was me. I drew people to me, not him. You see, God's after two things. Actually, I'm not going to do that.
Which are, see, so just put Isaiah 11, verse 2 up. Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He's talking about the Messiah, and therefore, because we have the same spirit as Christ when we're born again, he's talking about us. Spirit, do you know that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon you? <laughs> this is who you are. This is, this is stuff to get excited about. This is stuff to jump out of our chairs about, just if you feel like it. Particularly if you just got healed of your fatigue and your flu symptoms, it's a good time to jump out of your chair. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So God's after these two things in us, the knowledge of God and the fear of God. Now, the trouble is, there's a distinction here between the way a um, person in relationship with God will read that and the way a religious person will read that, and it's the same sentence. And they'll read that, so we've talked about the knowledge of God, but they'll read that other bit, the fear of God, as... That God's that angry guy on the throne. He's a consuming fire. He'll burn me up the minute I do anything wrong. I'm so terrible. I'm so, oh, everybody needs to repent. You're all bad. You're all awful. And, and we need to be very afraid of God. We need to be very afraid of God. And that's the way a religious person reads that sentence, the fear of the Lord. You see, the problem's this. Religious people have a problem. And I'm sure you've encountered religious people. Um, let me describe them for you. They're dull. Uh, they're boring. They're judgmental. Judgmental's a big thing that they're good at. Being good, um, they make you feel worse when they've talked to you. And, and they pay for you and you go away feeling worse. Yeah, that's a religious person. You can now spot them. Uh, they're controlling. They're manipulating. However much they use the word humility, you always get the sense that they're superior. Yeah? Um, they're full of pride. They never say sorry. They never show any mercy to anybody else, and they never show any grace to anybody else, but they expect it for themselves. Okay, that's a religious person. Who likes that sort of person? We don't want to be that person, do we? So we want to know how you end up with relationship instead. You see, the problem with a religious person is they don't know God and they don't really fear God. Not like it says there. They're afraid of God. Now that word fear doesn't mean afraid of. It means an Oh my goodness, I'm going to melt because this guy is so incredible. It's a, it's a reverence, it's an awe, it's a, I don't want to be any other place. I don't want to move. I don't want to move because he's here. You see, the way, so how do you get your head around that? How do you get your head around that sort of God who's also a father and a passionate pursuer of you. That's what religious people can't do, and that's why they end up boring. Because there's no excitement in their life. Because all they have to do is they keep on trying to do right things and keep on trying to do good things. And they'll keep on trying to get you to do the right things and keep on trying to get you to do the good things because they're afraid of God if they don't. 
And the point's this. You can't do any of that if you don't know him. Know who he really is because your desires are all wrong. You see, we, talk, we, we can talk a lot about holiness. Holiness can become something that we can never attain and feel terrible about and need to repent about all the time. Or holiness is seeing the purity of God and desiring it with all your heart. Wisdom is seeing the incredible judgment and, and, and um, wisdom and greatness of God's ways and God, I want to live that way. Mercy is seeing the, the tenderness of God's heart and going, I want to live, I want to do the same, I want that tenderness of heart. Grace is all about seeing the, the, um, the kindness of God and saying, I want to live like that, I don't want to live like this. And when you see God like that, why would you ever want to be anywhere else? You just go, God, I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you. Whose fault is it that we get it so wrong? This is the famous verse from Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. It says this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Destroyed, it doesn't mean like you burnt up. Okay, there's no lightning bolt. This is a good chapter. Basically, it means cut off. Can't, can't access the ways of my kingdom. Can't do the business. Stranded, doing it all themselves because they can't walk in the power, they can't walk in the life, they can't walk in the freedom, they can't be filled with the Spirit. They, 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 they come from their own strength and not the joy of the Lord. Why? Because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being priests for me. Who's to blame that we're all... England's like it is. Who's to blame that we're all going off? Who's to blame that we go to church on a Sunday and we're dull as ditch water and it makes no difference to us on a Monday? Who's to blame? The church, the priest, the leader of the church. So it's a really heavy burden we carry. So like on Monday, I'd like you to pray for me and Cheryl because that's the burden we carry. And Roger and Olive, that's what we carry. Because there isn't anybody else. The book stops here. We're meant to be those who are using the gift of God, the anointing of God on our life to lead others into the truth and the life that God has for them. You know, the anointing that God puts on somebody's life is to serve the church and equip the church till it comes to the fullness and stature of Christ. That's what it's here for. So it, it, it's a weight that we carry. So it, if you pray for us, that would be amazing. I know, I know, I, I know many of you do. I know Joyce does because she sends me texts and tells me off. But, you know. <laughs> God has this for you, Mark. Right, okay, Joyce. I've not been doing that, have I? No, you haven't, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me take you full circle and, and I'll finish here.
this conference we went to on Monday. So there's been three episodes <coughs> in my relationship with a guy. Some of you will have come across him. He's a guy called Ken Gott. Ken Gott was, um, well, still is, uh, the pastor of a church in Sunderland. And I talked at this first one of this series about uh, me being ready to walk away from God, from persuading me to give God one last chance, and walking into that place in Sunderland and encountering God and his love just like, and I never felt that before. Why? Because I was dull, judgmental, superior, all the rest of it. I was religious. And ultimately, I was dry as ditch water and ready to walk away. You know people like that. That was me. You've been there yourself, some of you. About eight years ago, Cheryl and I were at a conference and Ken Gott was speaking, and he was at a really, really low point in his life. And we had lunch with him, and we were able to minister to him. He'd not seen me between when I used to go to Sunderland and then, and we'd not seen him since that day. He's on fire. And he was speaking at this conference, and... Um, I was telling him the story of, of the day that I went up to Sunderland because it's one of my favourite stories. And it was really came out of this thing. And he said this thing. He said, he was basically saying, there are people who need what you've got. So this was his plea. You are, you, you, the Holy Spirit in your life is given to you because there's people who need what you've got. And, and if, you, if, you don't, uh, if you don't invest... Your passion and your, your um, energies in being full of God and full of the Holy Spirit, there are people who will never get what they need because you won't have what they need when they come to get you, from you what you've got. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was telling him about how on that day I was ready to walk away from God. And, and when I went down the front, he, he prayed for me and... Well, he didn't pray for me as such. He walked up towards me, and when he was three, years, three yards off me, I was flattened by the Holy Spirit. Now, given that I didn't know anything and had never sensed the Holy Spirit before in my life, that was a shock. And that changed my life. I would not be here. Cheryl would not be here. I wouldn't even be a Christian if God hadn't touched my life as a result of what that man had to give. Because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And I remember this. You can, you, everybody stand up. If you were at a conference, by the way, whilst, whilst, whilst we're all standing, you can start praying for people and giving what you got. Okay? You see, the way you reconcile that religious thing and relationship thing is this. And this is why I find this really exciting. You see, I have a father who loves me and cares for me and would lay down his life for me, and at the same time, he's the king of kings. And he has, he has got 
thousands around his throne. He's got armies of angels. There's no power like him. There's no strength like him. I'm in awe of him. So I fear him. Not afraid of him. I fear him. I respect him. I, I listen to his every word. I want to be moved by his every word because he's the guy. He's the guy. There's nobody like him. Nothing compares to him. He's, he's not just my dad. He's the king of kings. And you know, he's not... And, and I... To me, he's gentle. To me, he's kind. To me, he's loving. But he's the Lord of hosts. He, he commands the armies of heaven. He wipes out every opposition of the enemy. And he gives us his power to walk in it. And you know... In some ways, for many of us, he's like a lamb. We talk about the lamb of God. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. But he's the lion of Judah. And he's coming again. And he's coming soon. And one day, he's going to say, did you live for an audience of one? Did we live for an audience of one? Did you know me? Did you know me? Did you walk in Chester? Did you walk in mercy? Did you know truth? Did you look to me and say, I desire you with all my heart? You see, that's the knowledge of God, the fear of God. He is both and the same, and he's one and the same, and he's incredible, and he's my dad. He's my father. He's my saviour. He's my lord. He's my king, and I'm part of the army. And we need to start doing the business, guys. We need to start doing the business.